My thought for this morning is don't ever give up. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to read along with me, would you turn to the book of Luke? Luke chapter 15. In verse 11, the word says, A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now instead of waiting until you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few years later, this younger son packed all his belongings and took a trip to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money on wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. And he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs. The boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired men have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired man. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he was found. Let's pray this morning. Father, we just thank you today. For your presence in this place. We pray a blessing this morning, first of all, on Pastor Don and Jan, on Mark and Ramona, Lord. Just ask that they would have a tremendous time on their vacation. I ask that you would keep them safe every step of the way. Bring them safely home to us on the flight and the drive home, Lord Jesus. Just ask now that you would bless this word this morning. Bless the delivery of it and the hearing of it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Don't ever give up. Don't ever let a single dream of yours fall unfulfilled. Don't ever let your hope in anything be extinguished. Don't ever stop believing for salvation to come to the unsaved loved ones you may have. Don't ever stop believing for the restoration of those prodigal children. Don't ever give the enemy an inch. How many of you are never going to give up? Well, my work here is done, I guess. Let's finish anyway. What I'd like to do today is take a fresh look at who Jesus is. Realize that because of who he is, we can have complete hope and trust in him to bring those things to pass in our lives. It's not just a belief in Christ, but it's a confidence in Christ. Not just belief that he can do those things, but a confidence that he will do those things. The word confidence means to be convinced, to have inward certainty to trust. It's full trust in the powers, trustworthiness, or reliability of a person or thing. A feeling of trust in someone. Belief in one's or another's abilities. That's confidence. If you have confidence in your children, you believe and you trust that they're going to make right decisions for their life. If you loan your car to someone, it's going to be a person that you have confidence in that's going to return your car in the condition that it left your care in. You're not going to loan it to someone you don't have any confidence in. If you submit yourself to a pastor, you believe and you're confident that that pastor will lead you and help you to grow spiritually. Now, we can have confidence in others. We also have to have confidence in ourselves. We need to have confidence in our dealings with other people. 
we need to have confidence at our work. We can't always be, you know, it's okay to ask for help, but we can't always be asking people their opinion on the same thing we do every day. We have to be confident that we can do that job on our own. During a job interview, a measure of self-confidence will go a long way towards you getting that job. I have interviewed, I, I don't anymore in my present position, but in a past position, I used to conduct interviews with potential employees. And it was one of the worst things to have someone sitting there who had no self-confidence whatsoever, and you'd ask them questions and you could barely get a yes or no answer out of them. And if they were going to try and explain something to you in a full sentence, it was just almost uncomfortable watching the poor person struggle to give an answer. It felt bad for them. But yet, in the position I was in, I couldn't trust that person. We deal with customers in customers' plants, you know, several hours away. If a person can't be confident in an interview, how can I trust that person to send them out and deal with a customer and explain to a customer, you know, what some of his problems might be, what some of the things that are happening in his plant are that are taking place? If I can't trust him, to visit with that customer and satisfy that customer, how can I hire him for that job and put him in that position? So in an interview, it's good to show some confidence. A potential employer needs to see some measure of confidence in a person he's thinking of hiring. A lack of confidence can cause us to appear weak or timid. Now, if we lack confidence and we appear timid to people in the world, how do you think if we lack spiritual confidence, we appear to the enemy? weak and timid. Too much confidence, however, can make us seem arrogant or unteachable. Like everything else in life, I think there has to be a proper balance. Too much or too little of a thing each pose their own problems. A young man begins to notice a young lady with more than a passing interest. Now, if he approaches the young lady overconfident, he's probably going to make a fool of himself and uh, is not going to wind up with a date. Kevin and Linda and Melvin may know who I'm talking about here. If you don't, maybe I'll tell you afterwards. But I had a friend in my class, and um, I went to Plum City. My graduating class was only 48, so approximately 24 boys in the class. You were pretty much friends with everybody. Good friends with some, acquaintances with some, but you know, there was nobody you really didn't like or couldn't get along with. This one particular fellow I was pretty good friends with, and he was, shall we say, a little bit full of himself. And he went up to a girl, you know, swaggered up and asked her for a date, and she said, no, thank you. And rather than just saying okay and walking away, he had to have the last word, so he said, that's okay, I thrive on rejection. Why, I don't know why you would say that. But again, a small school, by the end of the day, I'm sure every girl in the junior class knew what he had said, and I'm sure every girl had no intention of ever going out with him in their life because of the statement that he made. He was overconfident. On the other hand, if the young man has no confidence, he's probably never going to get the words out to ask the girl, and he's never going to get the date either. This was me. <laughs> From the time I was 16 years old till the time I married my wife at age 27, I dated five different girls. It wasn't that I didn't want to date them. I was too afraid they were going to say no. So usually I didn't even ask. 
The night I asked my wife for a date, I stumbled over the words for about five minutes. I restarted three or four times, and finally she said, just ask me. <laughs> so then I spit the words out, and I had my first date. That was about 34 years ago now. Confidence, full trust in the powers, trustworthiness, or reliability of a person or thing. This is the investment of confidence we have to make in Jesus Christ. We have to make an investment of full and complete trust in Him. When you begin a job and you reach a point where benefits are available to you and you begin to invest for retirement, the financial people will tell you that you need to diversify your investments for maximum return and earning potential. It's a popular old saying from when I was a kid, but I've heard financial people say to me, don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's a dangerous thing to do financially. Well, if we're believing God for something, we can't afford to diversify our confidence. We can't say, okay, I'm going to invest 75% in God, the other 25% I'm going to save, I'm going to invest it in myself, in my pastor, in my friends, in my favorite TV preacher, etc., etc. No. 100% of our confidence has to be invested in God. Full trust. How and why can we do that? We can do that because God has given to us both his promise and his oath. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19 said, So God has given us both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can take new courage, for we can hold on to his promise with confidence. This confidence is like a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. His promise tells us what he will do. His oath gives us absolute guarantee of fulfillment of his promise. He gives us his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable, his promise and his oath. What he has promised must happen, and his oath says that it will happen. That's why you can take new courage. That passage says if you went to him for refuge, you can take new courage in what he said. Maybe your courage has been weakened. Maybe it suffered loss. Maybe it's been diminished. You know, we say we're never going to give up, but sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes we can get in situations and in, in, in positions where it's hard to hang on to courage. It's hard to hang on to that belief. It's hard to not give those things up. It's hard to not let them begin to slip away a little bit. But we can take new courage. If we flee to him for refuge, we can take new courage. Because the one whose presence you have fled to is both the one who has the power to make the promise, and he's the one who has the power to be able to guarantee the promise. So because he can't lie, let's look at what he says about himself and take a new confidence in him. The first thing he says is, I am the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Resurrection and life. Jesus doesn't just give us resurrection and life. Jesus is resurrection and he is life. Because of the finished work of the cross, final death is impossible for him. And final death is impossible for those in him. Our physical death to the believer is merely a transition to eternal life. Think back to Easter morning. Think about the great power that was on display that morning. Think about the ultimate victory that was unleashed that morning. Permanent death was permanently defeated that day. No more sting in death. 
No more victory for the grave. They've been rendered powerless. We still have to face them, but confidence in Christ allows us to face death with two questions. I think at the moment of our death, these should be the two questions on our mind. I think the first question we ask should be, O death, where is thy sting? And I think the second question we should ask is, O grave, where is thy victory? Because in Christ, they've been rendered powerless. Death may take us someday, but death does not beat us if we're in Christ Jesus. It's rendered powerless. It is lost. Death itself has died because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Put your confidence today, and let it be in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Though we were dead, yet shall we live. Even though life here is temporary, we're going to live eternally. To those in, in Christ, physical death is not the end, it's just the beginning. Jesus not only is life, but he conveys life to the believer, so that death will never triumph over us. Death to our body is not a victory for the enemy, but it's a terrible, bitter defeat for the enemy. Think about it. That soul of yours that the enemy's desired, if you live 40 years, if you live 50 years, if you live 90 years, all those years the enemy's desired that soul to have as a possession. When you're in Christ at the moment of death, that prize that he so coveted, that he so wanted, is snatched away from him in ultimate victory. Imagine death standing there and having to watch the angels carry your spirit to heaven and deposit you right at the feet of Jesus. Because though we die, yet we shall live. What a bitter defeat for the enemy. But what a glorious victory for us. Because he's the resurrection and the life. He also tells us we can have confidence in the fact that I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14 and 6. No one can come to the Father except through me. Um, I have a friend. He used to work with us. He doesn't work with us anymore. I'm sorry about the frequent drinks, but... Friday, about five, six pounds of pollen decided to lodge in my throat. So... Don't be offended by this, but I'm really looking forward to the first frost. <laughs> I have a friend. He no longer works with us. Um, he was a technician for a time, then he became a salesman. Now he's moved on to another company. But we would talk about the Bible all the time, and he'd have all these questions about the Bible. And I'm at work one day, and he calls me. It's probably about, I don't know, 20 after 3. I'm getting ready to go home. And I answered the phone, and, Scott. I said, yeah. He said, I saw a sign on the way home today. And the sign said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He said, what does that mean? That sounds kind of arrogant to me. He didn't understand, you know, who was saying it first of all and what it meant. <clears throat> so I began to explain to him the meaning of it, you know, that all these other religions that promise things that, um, they promise things that they can't deliver, but Jesus Christ is the only way, you know, by which a man can be redeemed and can be restored to proper relationship with the Father. And he's, oh, Okay. And then, you know, he just moved on. He was satisfied with the explanation. But Jesus is the way, truth, and life. There is no other way. No one can come to the Father except through him. He tells us that he's the way. People claim today that there are many ways to be saved, many paths to salvation. The Muslims believe they have the right way. The Buddhists believe they have the right way. The Hindus believe they have the right way. But Jesus said there's only one way, and there is only one way. Muhammad and Buddha and Gandhi and soon the Dalai Lama will all be in their graves. Three of them are already. One soon will be. 
having not saved a single person, having not provided a way to light and truth to one single person, but dragging many people down a wrong path with him. But there's only one, you know, this morning, whose tomb is empty, whose grave is empty because he rose in power and victory that resurrection morning. There's only one way. These other faiths may promise that they can, but can they also give an oath guaranteeing that their promise is true? They can't do it. They can promise, but they can't back it up with an oath. Jesus gave his promise and his oath. He said, I am the way. He tells us that he's the truth. Why does there need to be only one undisputable truth in our world today? Because our world today is full of lies. John 8, 44, speaking of the enemy, says he's a liar and the father of it. There's many lies today, and many people are caught in this web of lies. But there is only one truth. Jesus made it perfectly clear that he is that truth. Jesus is the life. There are many options for the kinds of lives we can lead, but there's only one way and there's only one truth to lead to abundant life. John 10.10. 10. There's only one way to joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1.8 references that. There's only one way to eternal life. Romans 6.23. When we accept and follow his way, and we accept and follow his truth, we can then experience his life. It's like a math equation. My way plus my truth equals my life. That's the life we want. It's a life in Christ. What's more, Jesus took the greatest gift known to man, and he made it basically foolproof. If we want it, we only have one option to choose from. We're not going to make it. The only way to choose wrong is to not choose it. Okay, it's not like there's five, six options out there and you've got to hope you pick the right one. It's not like let's make a deal. Where's eternal life behind door one, two, three, and you have a one in three chance. We have a 100% chance of choosing right because there is only one right way to go. It's not like a restaurant menu with many choices. There's only one choice. The greatest thing ever, new life in Christ, eternal life in heaven. There's only one option. There's only one choice. There's only one way. The only way we can mess it up is not to choose it. That's the only way. Not accepting Christ as the one way is like, um, I don't know what's the longest you've ever fasted, but imagine you haven't eaten for, say, several days. Let's say seven days you haven't eaten. You're going to be quite hungry, I imagine, after that time. Someone invites you into their home. They set you down at their table. They place a wonderful meal in front of you. All you have to do to satisfy your hunger is to eat that meal that's been placed in front of you. That's all you have. There's one meal. You've got one choice. You're hungry. All you have to do is eat it to satisfy your hunger. But rather than eat the meal, you look at it, you push it away, get up from the table, leave the room, and you go out in search of something to satisfy your hunger. This is people who don't accept Christ as the one way to salvation. The only way for man to satisfy the longing in his soul is to accept the one way that Jesus has provided. Yet when presented with it, man will often push it away, get up, walk out, and go in search of something to satisfy his longing. Put your confidence today in the one who provides one way, one truth, and one life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. John 6.35, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry again. What bread is to the natural body, Christ is to the soul. He nourishes and strengthens and he satisfies our spiritual life. The bread of life preserves us from death. There are so many people today, you see them every day, 
see them on the news, you see them in person, they're spiritual, spiritually starving because they haven't discovered or they don't partake of the bread of life. They've been pulled this way and that. They've been distracted by other things that claim to satisfy. They're spiritually malnourished. Does anyone here besides me love junk food? Oh, I know I'm not supposed to do it, but my car just had help pulling into Quick Trip on the way to work in the morning and grab a couple of those little cake donuts. They're so good. <laughs> I'll eat an apple for break and then figure I'm even for the day. <laughs> I want to be buried with a pizza. <laughs> it's, it's my favorite thing in the world. Fruits and salads are the enemy of happy eating. How many know that? <laughs> they are. But as temporarily satisfying as junk food is, there's no nourishment in it. It tastes good, it makes you feel good temporarily, but there's no nourishment in it. Now, if that's all I ever eat, my body's going to lack the vitamins and the minerals and the nutrients that it needs to function properly, that it needs to be healthy. My physical body will begin to deteriorate, and I will become malnourished. Our bodies need the right food to be nourished, so do our spirits. They need the right spiritual food to be nourished. Be confident today in the one who provides and is the bread of life. Jesus also said, I am the light of the world, in John 8, 12. If you follow me, you won't be stumbling through the darkness, because you will have the light that leads to life. The darkness of the world leads to death, but the light of Christ leads to life. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Have you ever had a power outage and you didn't have a flashlight on your nightstand? And you had to make your way maybe from your bedroom out to the porch or to the kitchen or something to find a flashlight and you're stumbling along in the darkness. You don't know what's right in front of you in the path, the obstacles that, you know, maybe your kids or grandkids left there. You don't know what might, you know, there might be a door open that you're going to walk into. You can't see in front of you because there's no light. There's just darkness. You can't walk down a path with confidence that way. But you add a flashlight to the mix and you shine it down at your feet, you can see what's immediately in front of you. You shine it out in front and you can see any obstacles that lie ahead. You can walk more sure. So it is with our spiritual life. When the light of God's word illuminates our next step and illuminates the path in front of us, then we can walk with confidence. He is the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. In John 10, 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's our good shepherd. We have a shepherd. We have a leader. We have a redeemer who watches over every step we take. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Now, depending on your perspective, that can either comfort you or make you nervous, knowing that he's watching every step. But it should cause us to walk with confidence because every step is watched over. Now, this isn't a job to the shepherd. At our jobs, you know, we have good days and we have bad days. There are days where we're really on the ball and we nailed it. And there are days where we got paid eight hours, but we probably didn't earn eight hours pay. We just weren't there for some reason. The good shepherd never has a bad day. He never has an off day. Every day his care for us is perfect. He watches over us in perfect love. The shepherd's relationship to us is personal. John 10.3 says he calls his own sheep by name. You have a name that the shepherd calls you by. It's not, hey, you. Hey, sheep, come here. It's your name. He calls to you, and when he calls you, he calls you by your name. You're not just one of the herd. 
You're not just one of millions and millions of sheep. He will personally call you out of those millions and millions of sheep, one at a time, by your name, to minister to you, to nurture you, for relationship, for fellowship. He calls us by name. And because of that personal relationship with him, and because he calls us by name, we know his voice. We don't have to be confused by what voice it is when he calls. We don't have to wonder, is that the Lord calling my name? Because of our relationship with him and because he calls us by name, we know his voice. We know and follow and recognize the voice of the good shepherd. And because of that relationship and because of his power as our shepherd, no enemy can ever take us away from the good shepherd. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them away from me. No one will snatch them away from me. Now, because of our own will and because of our ability to choose for ourselves, we can turn and walk away from the shepherd and walk into the lair of the enemy. But there is no power in heaven or earth strong enough and powerful enough to walk up to the shepherd and take sheep away from him by force. It can't be done. So be confident today that your shepherd can watch over you and protect you. Now those are just a few of the things that Jesus said he is. But because we believe in what he is, we can also be confident in what he said he will do. One of the first things he said he would do is in Matthew 4.19. He said, I will make you fishers of men. What does that have to do with confidence in Christ? Well, let me tell you. Once you're saved... You become a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That takes some confidence. It's not the easiest thing in the world to walk up to someone and begin to share the gospel with him. Even though we know we should do it, we know that's what we're called to do, what we're supposed to do. It's not an easy thing to do if you don't have some confidence. So we need confidence to be able to walk up and minister to those people. You become a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ whose business it is to win souls for Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to spend your life behind a pulpit necessarily. It could mean that. But most people are not going to spend their life behind a pulpit. Their ministry is going to be out there in the world. They have a duty and a responsibility to share the gospel with others. Every one of us go to places that none of the rest of you go. Every one of us come in contact with people that none of the rest of us here are ever going to come in contact with. So we have a responsibility as Christians to those people to share the gospel with them. We have a responsibility both to tell them about the good news of the gospel, and we have a responsibility to display in our lives conduct that lines up with the gospel. We witness to people not only by what we say and by what we do, we also witness to people by what we don't say and by what we don't do. All right? If someone is struggling with something, we can share with them how our faith helped us through a similar situation. If we're struggling with something, don't yell and swear and throw things and get visibly upset. Handle it in a way that's different from what they're used to seeing and how they're used to seeing people handle their problems and things that frustrate them. This takes confidence. It takes confidence to be able to restrain yourself because that's the easy thing to do. Getting mad is easy. Not getting mad is hard. Try it if you don't believe me. It's easy to get, it's like um, twice as many muscles to frown as to smile. Okay, getting mad is easy. But not getting mad can be difficult. It takes confidence. 
We can always think of reasons why we can't do something. But God has answers why we can. Moses had all kinds of reasons why he couldn't go to Egypt. He said, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? They won't believe me. Lord, please send someone else. Who shall I say sent me? But I'm not a good speaker. I can't talk in front of people. Every reason Moses had he couldn't go to Egypt, God had an answer why he could. Moses had excuses, but God had answers. Don't lose your confidence if God calls you to do something that may be a little bit out of your comfort zone. If he calls you, as I've said before, he will also equip you to do it. Be confident that God will give you rest. Now, how can I never give up? How can I never let go? How can I always hang on to these things and be talking about rest? Well, you have to have rest. Because sometimes in that hanging on and not giving up and not letting go, your body becomes weary, your spirit becomes weary, sometimes your faith is shaken. There need to be times where you can come aside and rest. And just because you're in a time of rest doesn't mean that you're sleeping or slumbering and you're leaving those things unguarded, that you're not protecting them, that you're not hanging on to them. Sometimes you just need that refreshing that rest brings. Various places in Scripture, there are invitations for us to come and receive from the Lord. And one of those invitations is for rest. You can have confidence in Christ. You can persevere with hope. You cannot give up. But sometimes you just need a break. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come unto me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That's an invitation. Come to me. That's an invitation from the Lord. To rest is to cease from labor in order to recover and renew strength. It's to refresh yourself. Rest is a gift of Christ to the believers. We can have confidence that he will give us rest when we need rest. Be confident that Jesus Christ is building his church. Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The course that this nation is currently on, it is distressing, it's frustrating, but it will not stop Jesus Christ from building his church. Terrorism will not stop Jesus Christ from building his church. People redefining marriage will not stop Jesus from building his church. Churches that don't preach Jesus Christ and him crucified will not stop Jesus from building his church. Governments that reject biblical principles will not stop him from building his church. All the powers of hell will not stop him from building his church. He's going to build his church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus is building, and Jesus will build his church. And lastly, be confident that Jesus will one day come again. John 14, 3 says, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you will be also. Now, what does all this have to do with never giving up? To hang on to our dreams and hopes requires, I believe, the proper attitude and the proper spiritual position. It requires confidence in Christ to maintain that proper attitude and that right spiritual position. I said before, don't let a single dream go unfulfilled. Don't ever let hope be extinguished. Don't stop believing for salvation to come to unsaved loved ones. Don't ever give the enemy a single inch. I'm going to ask the musicians to come if they would. Don't give an inch to the enemy. You ever heard that saying, don't give an inch or they'll take a foot? Don't ever give an inch. Fight for it. Cling to it. Hang on to it. To do that, our attitude must be never give up. 
Never give up. How many of you have read Winston Churchill's speech from 1941? One of his speeches. And I'm not a, I'm not a World War II historian, but basically um, when the war began, it looked as though Britain was going to be completely overrun by, Germ by the German army. Like there was no way that they could hold them off. And for a 10-month period, it seemed that that's just how it was going to be. And somehow, miraculously, the British army was able to stand against Germany where they weren't obliterated, they weren't wiped out, they weren't occupied. And on October 29, 1941, Winston Churchill gave a speech. And he was speaking about the previous 10 months. And he said, surely from this period of 10 months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never and nothing, great or small, large or petty. Never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. We stood all alone a year ago, and in many countries it seemed that our account was closed, we were finished. All this tradition of ours, our songs, our school history, this part of the history of this country were gone and finished and liquidated. Very different is the mood today. Britain, other nations thought, had drawn a sponge across her slate. But instead, our country stood in the gap. There was no flinching and no thought of giving in. And by what seemed almost a miracle to those outside these islands, though we ourselves never doubted it, we now find ourselves in a position where I say that we can be sure that we have only to persevere to conquer. How's that for an attitude? Never give in. Never give up your dreams. Never give up your hopes. Never give an inch. Our attitude has to be never give up. The second thing I believe is our spiritual position. Now we started with the prodigal son. We know that the boy left home, squandered all his money, found himself in a desperate state, came to his senses, and returned to his father. The part I want to focus on in that story is verse 20. It says, as well, he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming. If there's a prodigal in your life, this is the result that you're hoping for. But the lesson for us today is not in the son coming to his senses. The lesson today is what the father did. Verse 20 said he saw him coming from a long way away. The son leaving probably broke this father's heart. But I don't believe he ever gave up hope of his son returning. I don't believe on that day the coincidence caused the father to go be outside and look down the path where he saw his son go and just happened to see him return. I think that every day, maybe several times a day, the father went to that spot and looked down that road and hoped to see the son return. He went out and looked in a spiritual position 
of anticipation and of expectation. And he believed that one day he was going to see his son coming home. So don't sit in your house in a dark room and wait for a knock to come on your door and go to the door and see your blessing waiting there to greet you. Get up, get outside, look down the road, and expect in anticipation and expectancy your blessing to come up the road to meet you. As you stand this morning, those things that you hope and believe for, don't ever give them up. Don't ever let them go. Let your confidence in Christ today give you an attitude of never give up and let it give you a spiritual position of anticipation and of expectancy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you give the Lord a praise before we go? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Man, never give up. Always look down that road with anticipation and expectancy. Father, we thank you today, Lord. Thank you for the confidence that you give us. Thank you for your promise and your oath, Lord God, which both promises and guarantees the promise. Thank you that we can have such a confidence in you. Cause us to go forth from this place, Lord God, with renewed determination to never give up. And Father, may we look with anticipation and expectancy for those things you promised and those things we've, we've hoped for. We ask you to bless us all in Jesus' name. All the people said amen. 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 amen.